You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 91, State Constitutions, Part 1. Prior to July 1776, None of the colonies had declared full and permanent independence from Britain. Most were not operating under their old royal charters either. Provincial congresses operated in the colonies, but under what authority and how they should be structured all seemed to be open questions. Many colonies still had royal governors attempting to rule either just offshore in a navy ship or in some cases still actually within the colony. So I think it would be useful to step back and see how and when each colony made the move to establish an independent government. Local politicians developed their own new constitutions to create a structure for their state government, at least until the violence ended and British rule was restored under acceptable terms. Even before independence, though, most of these new constitutions were written with an eye towards setting up what would likely become new permanent independent governments. In case you're wondering, I'm looking at each colony in the order in which they first implemented their own constitution. New Hampshire was one of the first colonies to move to a provincial congress, and the first to adopt a constitution. When Governor Wentworth dissolved the Royal Assembly in June 1774, the members simply continued to meet and discussed forming a convention the governor and sheriff had to go down to the legislature and kick them out of the hall. That just meant the legislators would meet again in Exeter the following month, where they formed the first provincial congress. That would be the first of five provincial congresses to meet over the next year and a half to deal with issues on an occasional basis. The first few meetings simply seemed to be members of the old Royal Assembly continuing to meet without the governor's authority. After a while, local town meetings eventually began selecting representatives to attend the later provincial congresses. By late 1775, Patriot leaders decided they needed some more regular form of government that did not include the royal governor. So when the 5th Provincial Congress met in Exeter, it created a new constitution, which it adopted in January 1776. They did not submit the Constitution to the people for a vote. They simply implemented it on their own. The new Constitution had a bicameral legislature, meaning two bodies, just like they had under the royal government. It created a House of Representatives and a council. The Provincial Congress became the House, which then appointed 12 men to form the council. After one year, New Hampshire would hold elections for both House and council. It did not create any court system or chief executive, and this constitution would remain in place until after the end of the war. 
South Carolina was another early colony that moved toward self-government. The colony had been without a royal governor since the last one quit in 1773, and the colony would not receive its replacement until 1775. In the meantime, Lieutenant Governor William Bull served as acting governor, but did very little to govern. He would not call the assembly into session for fear they would do something treasonous. In July 1774, the leading colonists simply got together to decide what to do. They had no elections or any sort of formal appointment. Interested leading citizens of the colony simply met among themselves to choose delegates to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia and also to create the Committee of 99 to run the colony. Later that year, the committee called for elections to what would become the First Provincial Congress that met in January 1775. The Congress met and performed all sorts of government activities, such as raising a colonial army, printing colonial currency, and appointing delegates to the Second Continental Congress. When Governor Campbell finally arrived in June 1775, he refused to recognize the Provincial Congress and called back the old Colonial Assembly into session. After saying that the Colonial Assembly was full of patriots too, the governor soon dissolved that assembly. But he could not stop the Provincial Congress from running the colony. In November 1775, the colony held elections for a second Provincial Congress. When that Congress met in January 1776, it began drafting a constitution, which took effect in March, again with no popular ratification. In March, the Provincial Congress simply dissolved itself and then reconvened as the first General Assembly of South Carolina. No new elections, the old representatives just became representatives in the new Assembly. The Assembly elected a council to serve as the upper chamber. It also elected a president and vice president, the first president being John Rutledge. The Assembly also appointed judges, sheriffs, and other judicial officers. It allowed all property-owning males to vote, and there was no restriction by race, although I'm not sure if any free man was around who could meet the property requirements in the colony. The Constitution of 1776 only remained in place for two years, until South Carolina created a more detailed Constitution in 1778. Virginia chose to govern through a series of conventions. As in other colonies, the royal governor, Dunmore dissolved the House of Burgesses whenever the colonists voted on anything that he considered disloyal to the king and parliament. Local representatives then often met informally to decide what they would do anyway. In August 1774, the representatives met in the First Virginia Convention, allowing counties and boroughs to elect representatives. The First Convention selected delegates to the First Continental Congress and approved a series of trade restrictions to go along with the boycotts of British goods that patriots were pushing all over the continent. This first convention only lasted six days. The second convention met in March 1775, divided between those who still wanted compromise with Parliament and those ready to go to war. This is where Patrick Henry gave his famous Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech at the convention. The Radicals won the debate and passed resolutions to raise volunteer regiments to arm themselves and prepare to defend their rights. 
the third convention met in July 1775 after Lexington and Bunker Hill. Radicals had only gained in power. Instead of passing resolutions, the convention now began to pass ordinances that they would enforce with the power of law. It raised two regiments of Virginia regulars to participate in the defense of their rights, and this convention focused more on creating a real government for the colony and lasted for over a month. By the time of the fourth convention in December 1775, Governor Dunmore had declared martial law and was in open battle with the Virginia regulars and militia. The convention raised an even larger army and created a committee of safety to make decisions while the convention was out of session. This was an early form of an executive branch. During this convention, the leaders received word that their army had defeated the governor at the Battle of Great Bridge and learned that the governor had burned Norfolk, events that I discussed in detail back in episode 77. When the Fifth Convention met in May 1776, independence was clearly on the agenda. The convention instructed its delegates at the Continental Congress to call for a declaration of independence for all 13 colonies. The convention also began work on a Declaration of Rights and a new state constitution. Now, the Virginia Declaration of Rights is a pretty important document, so I want to discuss it in detail. George Mason primarily authored what became the Virginia Bill of Rights, though it went through weeks of debate at the convention. We see many of the concepts in this bill repeated in the Declaration of Independence in July, as well as the U.S. Bill of Rights more than a decade later. It consisted of 16 points, which I think are important enough to read verbatim. 1. That men are, by nature, equally free and independent, and have certain inherent rights of which, when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty, with the means of acquiring and possessing property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. 2. That all power is vested in, and consequently derived from the people. That magistrates are their trustees and servants, and at all times amenable to them. 3. That government is, or ought to be, instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the people, nation, or community of all various modes and forms of government, that is best which is capable of producing the greatest degree of happiness and safety and is most effectually secured against the danger of maladministration, and that when any government shall be found inadequate or contrary to these purposes, a majority of the community hath an indubitable, unalienable, and indefeasible right to reform, alter, or abolish it, in such manner shall be judged most conducive to the public weal. 4. That no man or set of men are entitled to exclusive or separate emoluments or privileges from the community, but in consideration of public services, which not being descendable, neither ought the offices of magistrate, legislature, or judge to be hereditary. 5. That the legislative and executive powers of the state should be separate and distinct from the judiciary, and that the members of the two first may be restrained from oppression by feeling and participating the burdens of the people. 
they should, at fixed periods, be reduced to a private station, returned into that body from which they were originally taken, and the vacancies be supplied by frequent, certain, and regular elections, in which all or any part of the former members to be again eligible or ineligible, as the law shall direct. 6. That elections of members to serve as representatives of the people in assembly ought to be free, and that all men having sufficient evidence of permanent common interest with and attachment to the community have the right of suffrage, and cannot be taxed or deprived of their property for public uses without their own consent or that of their representatives so elected, nor bound by any law to which they have not, in a like manner, assented for public good. 7. That all power of suspending laws or the execution of laws by any authority without consent of the representatives of the people is injurious to their rights and ought not to be exercised. 8. That in all capital or criminal prosecutions, a man hath a right to demand the cause and nature of his accusation, to be confronted with his accusers and witnesses, to call for evidence in his favor, and to a speedy trial by an impartial jury of his vicinage, without whose unanimous consent he cannot be found guilty, nor can he be compelled to give evidence against himself, that no man be deprived of his liberty except by law of the land or judgment of his peers. 9. That excessive bail ought not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. 10. That general warrants, whereby an officer or messenger may be commanded to search suspected places without evidence of the fact committed, or to seize any person or persons not named, or whose offense is not particularly described and supported by evidence, are grievous and oppressive, and ought not to be granted. 11. That in controversies respecting property and in suits between man and man, the ancient trial by jury is preferable to any other and ought to be held sacred. 12. That the freedom of the press is one of the great bulwarks of liberty and can never be restrained but by despotic governments. 13 that a well-regulated militia, composed of the body of the people trained in arms, is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state, that standing armies in time of peace should be avoided as dangerous to liberty, and in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to, and governed by, the civil power. 14. That people have a right to uniform government, and therefore that no government separate from or independent of the government of Virginia ought to be erected or established within the limits thereof. 15. That no free government or the blessing of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, frugality, and virtue, and by frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. 16. That religion, or the duty we owe to our Creator and the manner of discharging it, can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. And therefore all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion, 
according to the dictates of conscience, and that it is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity toward each other. After adopting the Bill of Rights on June 12th, the Convention then turned to its Constitution. Now, I'm not going to read the whole Constitution here, too, but it is well worth a read and begins with a list of abuses by the King, similar to what we will see in the Declaration of Independence a few weeks later. It explicitly states that the royal government of Virginia is, quote, totally dissolved, end quote, and replaced by this new Constitution. The new Virginia Constitution divides government into three separate powers, legislative, executive, and judicial. It divides the legislative branch into a House and Senate, with the House elected as two members from each county and one representative from the largest boroughs in the state. The Senate will come from 24 special districts created for that purpose. The right to vote would remain the same as it was under colonial rule, meaning white male property owners. The legislature chooses the governor annually with a term limit of three sequential years. The legislature would also choose judges for most courts and the Privy Council to assist the governor. The governor and Privy Council could appoint lower officials. In short, in this new constitution, the legislature pretty much ran the show, controlling who would serve as governor and on the courts. The convention approved the constitution on June 29th and had it go into effect without submitting it to the people for ratification. New Jersey had a relatively strong Tory faction and therefore got off to a late start with its provincial congress. The royal governor and colonial assembly stayed in power through December 1775. The New Jersey Provincial Congress had come into being in May 1775, while the royal legislature still met. Patriot committees in each county sent representatives to a provincial congress that met in Trenton. Again, they did not have any legal or electoral authority. These were simply prominent patriots who had the support of local committees. The Congress met in three short sessions in 1775, then a longer session in January to March 1776. The Provincial Congress voted for a tax to pay for a Patriot Army in the state. Since the Colonial Assembly and the Provincial Congress were both operating, they were competing for authority over the people of New Jersey. Even though there remained a strong Tory segment in the population, the Provincials gradually took power. When Royal Governor William Franklin attempted to convene the Assembly in May 1776, the Provincial Congress ordered his arrest and had him shipped to Connecticut. The Assembly never met again. The Provincial Congress met for its final session in June 1776, at which time it produced a constitution in a mere five days and ratified the document two days later. The Congress submitted the constitution to the Continental Congress for approval and began operation under its terms by the end of August, again without any vote by the people. The New Jersey Constitution, like those before it, created a bicameral legislature, that is, two parts, an assembly and council. Unlike other states, the people would elect members of both houses, three representatives from each county in the assembly and one from each county to the council the legislature selected a governor for a one-year term. The legislature would also appoint judges and military officers above the rank of captain. 
one of the more radical articles allowed for voting for all inhabitants with an estate worth at least 50 pounds sterling. This included blacks and women who did vote, though very few of them met the property requirements, especially since a married woman's property belonged to her husband. There were some blacks and women, however, that did vote. The Constitution also guaranteed freedom of religion and prohibited the establishment of a state religion. Despite the fact that legislatures threw the Constitution together rather quickly, it remained in effect for 65 years, though the right of blacks and women to vote only remained in effect for 30 years before the legislature simply changed the law and ignored the constitutional guarantee. In Delaware, they were concerned not only about independence from Britain, but also independence from Pennsylvania. Remember, the colony of Pennsylvania considered Delaware to be part of its own colony. Though it had allowed Delaware to have its own legislature, both were ultimately ruled by the same proprietary governor. So Delaware wanted to use this moment to make sure it would be entirely independent of Pennsylvania. Now, neither Delaware nor Pennsylvania had a royal governor. William Penn and his descendants owned the colony and served as governor without royal appointment or election. Delaware's elected assembly remained in power throughout the colonial period. It had no need to overthrow a governor or make fundamental changes to the way its government worked. The assembly took on a patriot bent as the people of Delaware themselves moved in that direction. Even so, in June 1776, the General Assembly suspended government under the crown, which also effectively ended any control from Pennsylvania. After the Declaration of Independence, the Assembly called for a constitutional convention in August with ten representatives from each of the three counties. The convention met on August 27th and had a constitution ready to go into effect by September 20th. Again, they saw no need to submit the new constitution to the people for a vote. Under the new constitution, the government remained similar to what existed in the colonial government. A general assembly would be elected annually by all freeholders, by which they meant landowners, with seven representatives from each county. They would also elect an executive council, with three members from each county, serving three-year terms. Both houses would together elect a president, who would serve as chair of the executive council, and was term-limited to three years. The president would also have a four-member privy council, with two members selected by the assembly and two members selected by the legislative council. The president and general assembly would jointly elect judges for various courts. The president also sat on a seven-person panel, the others appointed by the assembly and council, to hear appeals from Supreme Court decisions. The Constitution also prohibited the importation of any slaves, the establishment of any state religion, but also barred clergy from holding public office. Next week, I will finish up with the remaining state constitutions. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, 
as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to that, I do want to make a quick request for everyone who enjoys this podcast to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. The only way an independent podcast like mine can grow is by word of mouth. I appreciate everyone who listens and enjoys the show, but more good reviews will help raise my profile. Also, although maybe it's vanity, but I really enjoy reading all the nice things people have to say. If you have an iPhone or iPad, simply open up the podcast app that's already on your device, find the American Revolution podcast, scroll to the bottom, and there you'll find a link that you can click on to write a review. It should really only take a minute or two, and I'd really appreciate it. So today's online recommendation is one that I have enjoyed for quite some time. It's the Boston 1775 blog, which you can find at boston1775.net. This, I think bar none, is my absolute favorite blog of all time. As you might guess from the name, it focuses on pre-war and early war issues in the American Revolution around Boston. The blog's author is J.L. Bell, who to me seems to be a history machine. He churns out a new blog post every single day on a new and unique subject about the revolution. I don't know how he keeps up with it. He's even managed to publish a couple of books while maintaining the blog. One of them, The Road to Concord, was my very first book recommendation on this podcast. I've also seen uh, Mr. Bell speak in person a few times, as well as on some internet videos. So he's all over the place all the time, always talking about the revolution. If you want to learn more about any issue from this era, no matter how obscure, there's a good chance that Bell has already covered it on his blog. If you need more of a revolution fix than my weekly podcast, then you definitely want to check out boston1775.net. So this week, I gave a quick overview of the constitutions that the colonies developed before the Declaration of Independence. I think this underscores the fact that the Second Continental Congress was not leading people to independence. Rather, there's a good argument that the leaders were struggling to keep up with the popular desire for independence and for Republican representative government that protects basic rights and freedoms. By the time the founders get around to drafting the federal constitution more than a decade later, they would have plenty of examples at the state level with years of experience and how those governments were working. Now, personally, I find it fascinating to see how the different colonies created their own variants 
some going further than others in expanding voting rights and basic protections. There are not many books that cover these in a comprehensive way, but one of the few that I've found is today's recommendation. The First Constitutions, Republican Ideology and the Making of the State Constitutions in the Revolutionary War Era by Willie Paul Adams. It takes a close look at the various ideas and documents that led to the creation of the state constitutions. The book is about 300 pages of text and then about another 100 pages of appendix and index. The appendix has some great charts comparing the state constitutions in basic functions. It makes it much easier to compare different segments between states. I usually don't talk about book prices, but this one is pretty expensive. I think it was $144 for the full retail price of the hardcover. And even the used books are pretty expensive. I think this book was published primarily for college students who, as we all know, are forced to pay whatever they must to take a class. So cost may be a reason to avoid this book, but if you can find one at a decent price or are lucky enough to have one at your library, I think it really is an interesting read. The author, Willie Adams, was a university professor from Germany. I think this is his only book in English. He apparently was fascinated with the blooming of Republican ideals in 18th century America, and he passed away in 1994. If you're looking for a scholarly analysis of the early state constitutions, this book is the best one I've found. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.